Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a second-year graduate student in public history at Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, please welcome Lindsay Fisher. Hey. Hello. <laughs> so what's your weird fact for today? Uh, my weird fact is that there are more museums in America than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. That makes me so happy. I know, this is, right? <laughs> this is the most uplifting thing I've learned all day. <laughs> uh, I have another uplifting fact, if you would want another uplifting one. Yeah, do it. Okay. Uh, two years ago, there were approximately 850 million visits uh, to American museums, and that was more than attendance for all major league sporting events and theme parks combined. Dang. And sometimes museums can cost as much as <laughs> one of those events. Occasionally, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm usually thinking of like whenever I try to go to a like fancy aquarium and yeah. it's like $60 to see the whales. And I'm like, ah, but I want to see. Yeah. We count um, those as museums. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a zero. Not really the same. Um, well, so what are you drinking today? I am drinking a Jack Daniels Black Jack and Cola in honors of the distillery that is about 20 minutes away from me. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. And I am having a, this is so sad, a cupcake pink, like a rosé Prosecco. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, cupcake brand because that's what was left in my <laughs> fridge after a party a couple of weeks ago. Love Prosecco, always. Always. Yeah, I got to get that bubbly. Well, cheers. Clink. Clink. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about your research because, as you mentioned, it's been a while since I've had um, some non, like, pure science-y people on uh, to talk about, like, what the world of research looks like outside of a lab. Yeah, so that's sort of why I reached out. Um, so public history, just to give you a little bit of background. Um, it's sort of museums, basically. Museums, archives, historic preservation, um, all of the background stuff. Um, some of us like to think that public historians translate academic history for everybody else. Not everybody is going to pick up, you know, the real fancy academic journal and read what historians are publishing. So what we use our skill set for is we take all of that wonderful academic research that is absolutely vital and we make it so people can understand. So your job is like translating the jargon and explaining why you should care. Yes. Yep. Making so do you relevant. have to like, do you have to like, do you have dictionaries of jargon? Like I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of there's uh, I don't really think there's an actual dictionary anywhere, um, but we sort of have like these internal dictionaries of the way things work. Um, so one thing that I'm really interested in is like collective memory. And that's like a really jargony phrase that unless you're in the field, it's two words that you know. But when you put them together, you're like, wait a minute, I don't know what collective memory is. And it's basically how we as a society remember what happened, regardless if that's actually what happened. So that would be the idea of, um, so I'm originally from Texas. I've got some Southern roots, although it's not truly like old South, but like the idea of the Cowboys or, um, w which we imagine as being like mostly white when it was probably mostly like Hispanic, Mestizo, even, you know, black men, you know, Buffalo soldiers idea. Yeah. That would be an example of like collective memory. Yep. yep. 
Gotcha. And how much of collective memory is actually accurate? What, what would be your guess percentage? Oh, man. See, this is the thing. Historians are really bad at math. So we try not to put <laughs> numbers on stuff. At least I'm really bad at math. And a lot of uh, my friends are also bad at math. So uh, I don't know. But it's. I think that's also important. Even if um, what we remember isn't what happens, it's what becomes what happens. So it, it's... It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the past was because what you believe the past is is going to inform how people will act in the yeah. future. So both of them are important. And it's still um, uh, important to correct major inaccuracies, but those myths live on because they're myths. So like uh, George Washington chopping down an apple tree, we all know that story. It most likely never happened, but it still matters in... Uh, the collective memory of the United States. Right. And these kinds of myths can get um, per like they're both pernicious, but they can also, they can be really negative. And if you think of like the idea of like the Southern, like the lost cause, this yeah. idea of, of sla it wasn't about slavery. It was about States rights. Yeah. Well, it is about States rights to own slaves. You finish that right. sentence. Then, then it works out. But most people leave off that last clause. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and have like war. I mean, eh, I, I kind of assume almost everything we know about history is pretty warped in some way or another. A little bit. And that's that's why the job of public history is so vital is to take all of the really good research that's going on in academia and to make sure it gets out into the public. So to correct the misconceptions so that even if those myths are still around, we know the truth behind the myth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why shows like, um, what, what's it called? Adam Ruins Everything. I don't yeah. know if you've ever seen it, but yeah. they're doing like a history series right now. Oh, I love Adam's Ruin Everything. They also have a podcast. Oh, duly noted. I will add it to my queue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's that, that kind of idea that, like, it, I think it can actually be really fun to be, you know, say, oh, this is this this common health belief. Did you know, like, the truth is actually more interesting and complex and, like. Exactly. And that's that's sort of our way in. It's like, everybody knows this story, but actually, if you look at it from this way, this is what really happened. And so that's how uh, a lot of public historians can tell those uh, factual stories is by starting in with the myth. So then how much of what you do is actually like you talking directly to the public versus like, are you writing papers? Are you redesigning museum exhibits? Like what, what, what is, yeah. <laughs> well, right now the way our program is set up um, is we have two years of coursework, then a year in residency where we're working um, with nonprofits, with uh, other schools, um, with state historical societies, National Park Service, something to that effect, somewhere in the field. And then uh, the next year, the fourth year, we're writing our dissertations. So within our classes, we get the opportunity um, to work in exhibits. Um, so last year, I was part of a gallery redesign for a local museum here, and that was so much fun. So we got to completely gut and tear out a gallery down here and then build it back up from scratch. Like we were the ones, you know, using the power tools and none of us had any idea how to use power tools, but it's all. <laughs> and that exhibit um, at Bradley Academy Museum and Cultural Center, if anybody is from the Nashville area and would like to go. Um, has won about eight awards now. Uh, so 
not that that's I'm awesome. Like, you know, so like you were you were doing back. like the physical redesign. <laughs> yes, uh, as well as the intellectual redesign. Um, the room before was just sort of here's all of this stuff about the school and the community and churches. It didn't really have a focus. It was just sort of well, we have all of this stuff, so we need to display it. Um, and we focused it more on education uh, in the African-American community in Rutherford County. So by focusing it, we were able to uh, simplify the structure and put up very specific panels chronicling um, the education of African-Americans in Rutherford County from uh, roughly uh, pre-Civil War all the way to the present. And then there's also this theme of activism that runs throughout it because education in itself is an activist act. Um, and then also the community there uh, bought the building and saved it from uh, being torn down. And they're the ones who built the original uh, exhibits that were in there. So they preserved their own school and we were honoring that by telling their story as well. That's so cool. And that's such a cool mixture of both like the local history and, and like how these like local organizations are trying to preserve what's in the area. I feel like a lot of like you end up, if you've ever been to like small museums and like weird Midwestern towns, like I've been to like the Boone County museum in Columbia, Missouri, um, that the Boone, the Boone County Historical Society has. And it's like just like a really interesting, weird collection of objects and, and stories. And it's, I feel like it must be really interesting, but also hard to put it into a, a coherent like narrative or context when, when most of the original work was just like, we just saved a bunch of old documents and stuff. Like, Yeah. The theme for most of those places is it happened here. And that's, that's about it. So everything we have happened in Boone County. So we're going to display everything that happened in Boone County and that you have to work within the theme. And that's why I love public history is trying to find things that, you know, line up with certain things like education and fashion. And it, it opens up a whole new world of how to display things to people to make it interesting and to make history relevant for everybody. And you get to be, I mean, like if, if you're a little, you know, slightly ADD or you have a lot of interest, it's probably good because then you get to jump around between different exhibits that are focusing on different things or even different museums and you get, you get a lot of variety, I'm guessing, in the kind of work you're doing. Yes, yes. That's uh, part of why I chose public history is I had a little bit of ADD in my research is I like all of history. I don't want to pick just one and study it forever. I want to study all history and public history gives me the option to do so because well, wherever I work, I'll be making an exhibit for whatever they need. And that gives me the opportunity to study a whole bunch of history uh, without being uh, pigeonholed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So then how did you even, I mean, how did you hear about public history as a thing you could study? It, it seems like when you think of like what jobs historians get, you think of like spending a lot of time in a library, trans like transcribing tiny cursive writing or, you know, like that's my friends who have done history. That's, that's what I imagine. So I didn't even think of like public history as being a thing you could study. So how did you find it? Well, uh, it's a bit of a circuitous route uh, that I took to public history. Um, I started off as a music major, actually, um, and was gung-ho to be a band director. And then about three years in, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> um, and decided to change my major to history education. And then in my final semester of that, I decided I didn't want to teach in a high school. So I went to graduate school in history. 
Um, and then as part of my uh, master's program, they the school I went to had a museum on campus, the Youngstown Historical Center of Industry and Labor, if anybody is in Northeast Ohio and wants to go there. Um, and I worked there as part of my uh, graduate work. Um, and I loved it. My days were different every day. Um, I could uh, work on homework and then still uh, give tours. So I was still educating people. And I could hear all of these stories um, because the Steel Museum, as it's called locally around there, um, is still so uh, vital um, because the steel industry is still uh, a really strong presence there. So we would get people coming into the museum being like, yep, I worked in that building and I was there when they tore it down, you know, in 1979. Um, and so hearing those stories, uh, it really affects you. And there are people who are still living who remember all of these things that I'm talking about. So it was really great uh, to do that. And so from working there, I decided to uh, pursue another degree in public history. And MTSU has one of the... Uh, longest running and preeminent degree, uh, doctorate degrees in public history, um, in the country. So decided to come here for that. So you made a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then what kind of class, like in your first year, what kind of classes were, I'm, I'm guessing you're not taking like a history class, um, because this is a lot more about like knowing how to research the local history that you're trying to then integrate into, either a display or a written piece or, or whatever, I guess. Yeah, um, I did take one, what I guess we would call traditional history class, um, where you read a book and you write a paper on it every week type of deal. Um, but most of my classes were more, here's the history of museums and here's how you fit into it. And then here are the new trends that are coming with digital history and creating online exhibits. And here's how to evaluate those. Um, visitor studies is a new thing uh, that's getting a lot of press is how do we um, tailor our exhibits and displays to visitors. Um, and then also uh, ADA, IDEA, um, all of those acronyms are very important to my work as well, making sure that uh, people with all types of uh, physical limitations and mental limitations are able to access our collections and our displays. So all of that stuff is involved in our classes. So when we were designing the Bradley Academy exhibit, we had to make sure, you know, stuff is not too high up off the ground. So if you're in a wheelchair, you can look over it. We have some digital displays and we had to make sure, you know, the pressure sensitivity on them um, is hard enough that if you have arthritis, it's not going to hurt you if you press you don't have to press too hard in order to get the displays to pop up. So different things like that, that most people wouldn't normally think of. But when you think like a public historian, you have to think about access and who all can access this. And then who is being excluded by the choices that we're making and displaying the information this way. So it's a mix of like uh, a historian, a psychologist, because you want to understand like how people think and will approach and, and, and interact with things, but then also an engineer because you want to make sure that everything is accessible and, and dang, that's a lot of hats to wear. <laughs> <laughs> and if you um, talk to like any of these small, smaller to medium, large to medium museums, most of the people have maybe one full-time staff member. Um, 
but most of the time it's three or four part-time people and they all wear those hats. So hats off to them, but it is a lot of hats to wear. And that's, that's why I like it so much is because I like to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to dabble in all of the things yes. in all of the topics. <laughs> yes. I want to do all of the things. Um, so I'm really curious. I have to ask this. Uh, when you were studying like the history of museums, do you also end up talking about kind of some of the earliest, like, I, I think of P.T. Barnum when I think of some of the earliest American museums, because he like, he basically collected a lot of odd, weird <clears throat> shit and put it in a building and charged people to come look at it, which is kind of like a first museum in my mind. Yeah. Uh, we do talk about P.T. Barnum a little bit. Um, Charles Wilson Peale is uh, like the very first person to create an American museum um, in the loose definition of it. We mostly call those things uh, curiosity cabinets um, mm. because it's just like, here's all the shit I collected and now you guys get to see it because um, they're not really organized around a theme. Um, and then those collections later turn into our modern day museums. It's all Where we start actually having some unique. kind of curation involved and, and organization, right? Yeah. So, and then as we are moving from past to future, what do you think about like all the new AR, VR technology type stuff? Like how much do you think is going to be integrated in the next couple years in design and how much of it is either like too expensive or like still too technologically new for it to be useful for most people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be integrated a whole lot. Uh, I know the Carnegie Museum of Natural History um, has a couple of things where you can put on the VR headset and then walk around ancient Rome um, or, or things to that effect. So I think the larger museums are going to get it first. Um, and then as the technology becomes more affordable, then it'll trickle down to the medium-sized museum and then the smaller museums. Um, I know there are uh, other ideas that I'm like, we need to do this. It needs to be a thing um, is to take these like historic photographs and do like a sliding scale of like your downtown through the years, like from 1900 to 1910 to 1920, and then see how it changes. Mm. Um, you can do that sort of low tech. Now they have, um, like panels in some of these historic Main Street type deals that have um, an old photograph that's sort of a transparency. And then you can look through it and then see the town as it used to look with the present day town in the background. Um, so there are low tech version ways to do the high tech AR VR type of deal. But I think it's going to be uh, a lot more present as the technology becomes more affordable. And what is absolutely vital is that we have people who are trained in digital humanities and people who are talking to each other uh, from uh, the humanities departments and the technology departments to be like, hey, I have this idea. I don't know how to do it, but I'll supply you with all the research materials if you can build the code. So you mean like uh, by digital humanities, you mean some kind of like hybrid between these two that, yeah, allows you to actually use this technology in the ways that humanities people want. Yeah. Um, there's one um, program now called Story Maps, uh, which is also used for science and uh, climate change type stuff, um, where it tells a story in a loosely linear fashion. And you can click through and see how um, things change over time. And it's uh, basically a 
platform for exhibits um, that's online. So some places are awesome. better at doing it now than others, um, but story maps are a big deal. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm thinking of like if you had the, you know, doing the low tech VR of see how the cityscape has changed and then like you can get start start getting more high tech. And, and I know that like I'm going to say Emerson College is working on some cool stuff about like visualizing climate change where like you put on like VR headsets and you can see how a city will change if it like goes underwater or something like that, you know, with with rising seas. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty dope. So do you work only, are, are you primarily in history museums or do you also do work with science museums or art exhibits? I mostly work in history museums. Um, my dissertation focuses on historic house museums in particular. Um, but in my future work, my future residency work with uh, a nonprofit in Nashville called Chick History, I'll be working uh, with all sorts of um historic sites and people. Um, so it just depends on who, on who <laughs> depends where you are and what you've got. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking of history, I know you mentioned, you said it was be okay if I brought this up. I wanted to know what your opinion is on, um, the whole pulling down monuments, especially in the South, the monuments to, to the Confederacy or, you know, symbols of oppression as most people see them. So the way I think of this is uh, when we erect monuments, they say more about the people who put them up than the people who are represented on them. So most of those monuments are put up in the 1920s, which is, you know, 80 some years after the Civil War ends. 60 some years, told you I'm not a math person. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the people who had survived the Civil War are now dying. Um, so some of those monuments that are, you know, just for Confederate veterans in general, yeah. But if you're putting them up specifically to a place where Robert E. Lee never visited, what, what it's saying more about the people in the 1920s than it is about Robert E. Lee. And weren't some of those put up in like the 1960s, like right around the like civil rights movement? Yes. Yeah. So in the 1920s, we get a resurgence of the Klan. And then in the 1960s, we get a backlash with civil rights. So that should tell you about what's happening in those spaces and why those monuments are put up. And that says a lot about what that society is feeling versus like, why are these monuments being put up? And it's not, you know, to honor Robert E. Lee on the 100th anniversary of the Civil War. Yeah, It says a lot about uh, the people who have the money in 1960s South. So. So do you think that, like, do you think Oh, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Um, I think there's um, a lesson to be learned from former Soviet bloc countries. And that is, they take down the statues, but leave the bases. Uh, So you can see that there was once a statue there, and then you can interpret that empty space. Because that tells you what the society valued at that point in time. And then it shows what happened before, but also that they no longer have those same values. 
and so it shows the the change over time. I actually saw that in um, New Orleans the last time I went to visit is we saw just an empty pedestal where we're pretty sure there had been a, a Jackson, either an Andrew Jackson or a Stonewall Jackson, one of the Jacksons. Um, and it was just the empty pedestal. And I kind of thought, I mean, the rebar was a little ugly, but the pedestal itself was an interesting image. And it says a lot, right? Like just an yeah. empty pedestal. So I think that's more interesting than just having, you know, a statue of a random guy that most people aren't going to go up and read about it anyway. I mean, most of these are in like, you know, (laughs) if you're getting your history from a monument, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you shouldn't be getting your history from a statue. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that actually, you, you brought up the, the old Soviet bloc countries. So I think it's in Hungary. I was visiting and I was in Budapest and I almost, I kind of wish I'd done it now. They have this thing called, um, I want to say it's called like Monument Park. And it's, they took all of the old like Stalinistic big, you know, super blocky, what you think of as like Soviet design statues. And they put them out in this giant park and you can like climb all over them and take photos with them. And like, it, it looks crazy. It looks so cool. Like I kind of wish I, I'm a little annoyed (laughs) I didn't go. I know I saw on, uh, something that, uh, on one of the stars on an old Soviet, I think it was a, a Stalin statue. Somebody had painted Patrick from SpongeBob in the star. Um, and that made me really happy. <laughs> it's, taking back that, it's taking back that space because they're saying that these are no longer our values and we're going to make this statue work for us. And that's like, it's, yeah, this it's is- a local decision, but I mean, it, it says more about the society that put them up than it does about, you know, the 1860s. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so I was also wondering, oh man, I just kind of lost how I wanted to phrase this. Um, oh, so I was kind of wondering in terms of like, once you get your PhD, will that mean that you are going to work in like, could you potentially get a job in a single museum, like curating it? Or is this more of a kind of an, an, a higher organizational level where you would be moving around and helping museums redesign spaces or or reinterpret the way that they are, you know trying to show parts of history. I mean, I could do either one. That's, that's the beauty of it. Um, it's basically what your interests are at. Um, I could go and be, you know, the executive director of a small museum somewhere. I could, um, work my way up in a larger institution. Um, I could, uh, you know, be a curator or an, uh, educations director in a medium sized institution, you know, do, do something, uh, in the like the management side, like I want to start off as like a tour guide, um, but something like a little bit in the full time position arc <laughs> in uh, museums, <laughs> and then hopefully, you know, with healthcare, all that good, all that good stuff, um, and then hopefully stay there, move around a little bit, you know, who knows? Um, I'm flexible. That's that's the nice thing is I like designing exhibits. I like focusing on museum education. Um, curation work is also really exciting. Um, so I'm fine with whatever. I also like teaching so I could, uh, conceivably, uh, get a job at a university and teach. Um, I'm fine with whatever, wherever will pay me. (laughs) You're like, I'm flexible. (laughs) Hire me. Exactly. (laughs) 
Um, how much of the work that you do – so you talked about that you do a lot of, like, museum design and talk about the history of that. Um, you mentioned that, like, kind of tracking visitor usage is a new thing. How much time do you spend, like, doing stats or, or like, A-B testing between, you know, two different versions of an exhibit or, or, or stuff like that? So I haven't gotten specifically into visitor studies. Um, that is a little bit more, it's getting more to be a specialized field. And there are whole companies out there now who just focus on visitor studies. Um, but we did a little bit of that with the exhibit that I redid, um, where we had uh, the panels up and we had uh, the people come in and critique them and change this and change that. And it was mostly done by committee um, because we were working with um, the the city Murfreesboro uh, owns Bradley Academy, um, so the city had to approve it, and then the director of Bradley Academy had to approve it, and then there's also a friends group um, that we worked with, and then of course we have this great resource of all of the professors um, at Middle Tennessee who are both traditional and public his- historians, so they came in and looked at all of our exhibit scripts and designs and offered critiques. Um, so there's some, uh, idea of like what works, what doesn't changing things a little bit. Um, but because that's such a specialized field, we didn't do so much of it. Um, but we do run a little bit of it afterwards. So after the exhibit opened, we had uh, a couple of little cards that said, um, what would you change? What did you like? What's your favorite part of this exhibit? You know, that type of deal. Um, and so we're getting some feedback on the next time, you know, they redesign a room or whatever, what they could change. Have you gotten, have, have you personally read any of that feedback? Like, has it seemed useful? Um, some of it is a lot of the complaints is that sometimes the screens don't work, um, for the technology and that's, there's only so much you can do. Um, mm-hmm. for that because sometimes it just needs restarted and that takes a long time and then people have moved on. Um, but you know, that I haven't read too much of it because that's more, uh, for the director. Um, so then she would be like, okay, for the next time that we redesign a, a gallery, here's the stuff that we've gotten. And I don't want these screens in here cause they're too much of a hassle. You know, if that's something that she decides that she wants. Right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I'm just wondering because like I have um, – as a psychologist now, as like a like a student organizer, I do a lot of surveys and sometimes they're like really useful and they have great insights and sometimes they're just like stupid – like complaining about stupid things you can't fix. Yeah. And it's like, cool. I, I mean like thanks for writing a comment, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> At least you participated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I was just curious how much of that you've seen. Not a whole lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I just, oh, I'm kind of jealous. There's like a a, a museum um, exhibit design class that I just now found out exists at Northwestern. Ooh. And I'm super jealous because I want to do something like that and just like get a sense of like, I think it's really interesting each area you teach kind of needs a different approach. I'm not even sure if it's each top. So I'm thinking like science museums tend to be more hands-on than history museums. Like you don't want people touching the artifacts. There's, um, there's some debate going on now. 
Um, I'm going to shout out a book in case anybody wants to read it. It's called The Anarchist Guide to Historic House Museums. Um, and what it's talking about is, you know, we set these rooms up like museum exhibits and we don't allow anybody in there. But what's the purpose of a chair? It's to sit on it. And if you're not sitting on it, well, what good is it? Um, so it's this idea to radically change historic house museums until, you know, let people down from the barriers and, you know, to sit on the furniture, to pick up the teacups, you know, to, to touch things because what are objects if we can't touch them? Um, yeah. So it's a, it was published in, I want to say 2015, 2016, and it's getting a little bit of traction, but a lot of people are like, no, we're not letting anybody touch anything. How dare you? <laughs> Which is, is valid. I was going to say, <laughs> like, it's a hard pushback. Like, I do agree that something about having a tactile experience is just going to change the way that you understand and conceptualize a lot of things. But if you've only got one set of the china, you don't want some bad tourist to come in and, like, throw yeah. shit, you know? But it's, then it also goes as to how much are you going to trust your visitors? You know, are you going to trust that your visitors won't, you know, throw all your teacups around or break your mantelpiece? You know, are, are you going to trust your visitors or are you putting, are you inherently saying that you don't trust them anymore? So hmm. it's, it's a yeah. conversation that's happening. That's, um, I haven't decided where I fall on it. And it's a bigger conversation of like what kinds of like, so you could also say you want to trust your visitors and you trust them too much. Well, maybe you only let in groups of four in at a time so that you can keep a closer eye on them. Or you have like replicas that, you know, feel the same and use the same techniques, you know, uh, manufactured China that like you can see how delicate it would have been. But if they break it, they're, you're not losing something, you know, one of a kind. Yeah. There's a, a in some of these historic house museums, they're doing, um, like as fundraisers, they'll have people come in, dress up in period clothing, and you know have a tea party using the original china. But I oh, mean, that sounds awesome! I mean, you got to pay hundred, hundred and fifty bucks to do it. But I mean, then the, I guess that's their insurance policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's all kinds of things that I'm so like, there's like pause does like a, a beach party thing to raise money for the, for the dogs. But it's like, it's like $150 for a ticket for a human and then 20 for your dog. And it's like, yo, come on. <laughs> I don't have that kind of money. Um, there are, oh, I had something that was gone. Should have wrote it down. Flew out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know, um, you're talking about uh, science museums, and they're very different from history museums in that a lot of them don't have collections, so to speak. Um, like, they don't yeah. have original artifacts. A lot of it's just, like, you know, hands-on stuff. Um, but museums are trying to, you know, get a little bit more into that, uh, especially with replicas. Now, there's some... Um, some debate still going on uh, about whether or not to let guests touch replicas or reproductions. Um, I say, why not? Cause it's not original. Like if it was made in the sixties, the 1960s, not the 1860s, then I mean, I don't see what's the harm in letting somebody touch it. Um, <laughs> 
like that's all I want to do is I just want to touch things. Um, that's why I got into museums because I wanted to be behind the scenes and just touch everything. So <laughs> yeah. my friend is about art museums. She's like, I always sneak one touch of one painting yeah, just- when I go to. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Um, there is, I think it's either, I want to say it's the Louvre or maybe the Met, one of the really big art museums, uh, 3D printed a lot of their paintings, um, so that they could have blind people, uh, people who are low vision, um, come in and see the paintings. They could touch them, touch replicas of the 3D printed paintings, um, which is super cool, uh, 3D printing is going to change the game uh, as far as replicas go. Yeah, I never even thought about that because so many people talk about 3D printing with like metal and like making replacement parts, but it seems way more likely that it'll be good for replication and and like, yeah. Because a lot of that stuff is um really expensive because it has to be like, you know, hand carved, especially if you want to get uh, like wood that's you know exactly right but if you're just using it for education and to show somebody you know how how big it is versus how heavy it is then i think 3d printing it would be just fine and i know at the um the steel museum where i worked for two years they 3d printed one of their very large wrenches um because we had a couple of wrenches that are over 100 pounds um and this very large wrench it allows you to see how big these tools were um, and then you can like, see, this is about the size of a four-year-old and then you can, oh pick, it, you can pick it up and hold it. Um, and then you get to say you were holding, you know, this giant wrench, but just kidding. It's 3d printed. Yeah. I was gonna say great photo <laughs> op. Good choice. Exactly. Exactly. And we tell people, you know, uh, tag us on Instagram. If you take a picture with our wrench. So <laughs> that's fun. And that's like some like guerrilla marketing there. Exactly. Help keep museums strong. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's an awesome story to end on. I don't know if we if we <laughs> didn't cover anything you wanted to talk about. Or is there any big topics I totally missed? Um, the one thing I did want to talk about is my specific research. Um, we talked a lot about like museums in general, but what I'm doing specifically, I sort of wanted to touch yeah. on that a minute. <laughs> Go for um, it. So what my dissertation is on is the representation of women in historic house museums. Um, and I'm basing this sort of off of the stereotype of like, we all think of women, especially uh, women in, you know, the 1850s, 1830s as uh, being housewives and they only stayed at home. They didn't go to work. So they were at home all of the time. So I'm going to these historic houses and looking for where they're telling the story of women. And what I'm finding is they're not. Um, Most of the time when I visit a historic house museum, I'm getting the same woman over and over again. Uh, She's a pioneer woman. She makes all of the candles. She does all of the washing. Um, And, you know, in these big grand plantation houses, that seems a little bit... uh, disingenuous especially because they had the lists of you know oh they had 80 slaves 150 slaves um she wasn't doing the washing she wasn't cooking the meals um but we still get that stereotype and so i'm i'm digging into uh how are we going to tell complex stories about women um in a domestic setting which is their stereotype setting 
And if we can't tell it there, how are we going to tell it at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no longer like the special case of like, oh, and here's a Rosie the Riveter exhibit. That's the one case when women got out of the house, you know? So I'm I'm Also, I'm so surprised that the exhibits aren't covering women better when you do think that they were probably, I mean, they might have been in charge of keeping track of the financial books. And so they also got to decide what kind of furniture they wanted to buy or what kind of china or silverware or whatever. I mean- it seems like that there should be a lot of a lot more autonomy historically for women in the house because they are seen as, you know, kind of the the ruler of the household and so it's surprising that museums aren't conveying that better. You would think. And that's sort of what I was thinking uh, going in, but there's this disconnect a little bit between um the the research that's being done on women and then it's not trickling down to these historic house museums yet. So there's not being continuous, re- there's continuous research done on the specific people who lived in the house, but not in general what life was like. Um, so what happens is that the books that get kept, the diaries that get kept, are all the men's. So within two generations, everything that was mom or grandma's is lost. So it's amazing that anything survives, really. Um, and that's... <laughs> and that's uh, Part of what I'm looking at um, is where we're telling the story. And then um, also I'm looking at the preservation story of these historic house museums. A lot of these places were preserved in the 20s and 30s um, by ladies associations. And if we're also not telling the story of how the house is preserved and why it's here, then we're leaving women completely out of the picture. So both in the work that they did when the house first, when it existed as a house and when it became something to preserve. Yeah. yeah. And we're only talking about governor so-and-so or general what's-his-name, and we're not talking about his wife, his daughters. And what cracks me up is uh, when I go to the Civil War houses and they're always talking about all of the battles that take place, but never about what it was like for the women who are at home which is where we are and what we should be talking about. <laughs> Not the battle that happened, you know, 20 miles down the road where the guy was. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just like. When I imagine that this becomes even more noticeable when it gets to plantation homes and it's like, well, now we've cut out women and people of color. And like very little is probably told of their story except for, yeah, they were slaves. I've actually the found um, so far I've done about. 10 of these uh, in Tennessee, mainly, but I plan on going into Ohio um, as well. And so far, I have found that as a field, we're doing much better talking about um, enslaved history and uh, enslaved people on plantations uh, than we are about women. And don't get me wrong, we're still doing a really terrible job talking about enslaved people in historic house museums, but most of the time, they're at least mentioned. Whereas sometimes women aren't mentioned at all. <laughs> I don't know if that's encouraging. Yeah. I, so, I can't tell if that's encouraging or depressing. Like, man, we just really hate women that much. Or, hey, we've really gotten our shit together about how, like, absolutely horrific. And, like, the fact that these people's stories were not told. These, their stories were not told because of the color of their skin. Well, about 20-ish years ago, there was a book that came out called Representations of Slavery. 
um, that went through about 150 plantation house museums in the deep south. So Alabama, Louisiana, and I think Georgia or South Carolina. And they found that the majority of the house museums didn't mention slavery at all. Um, Ooh. Yeah. And that once that came out, people were like, oh, this is not just our problem. This is the field's problem. So it was really a concerted effort in the field to change that. Um, so now a lot of these places do talk about, you know, we do, they did have slaves here. Um, a lot of them stayed. Some of them left. Um, we know where their houses were. We know some of their names. They do try to incorporate it more. So I think 20 years ago, they wouldn't have been mentioned at all unless somebody asked. Um, but now, uh, at least they're mentioned. So small victories, I guess. Yeah, I'll take what we can get. <laughs> yeah. Moving no, in the okay. right direction, at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just keep pushing a little harder. <laughs> yeah. Man, that sounds like some cool, like, I mean, I feel like I might come home depressed a little bit every day, but it does sound like some cool research. It is really cool. Um, right now I'm taking an archaeology class and I'm a little bit depressed every day when I read about just how awful um, historically anthropologists and archaeologists treated Native Americans. Um, so that's, it's, it's a little bit less depressing now that the semester is over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to having a, a little break for the summer um, before I get hardcore back into my research mode. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I'm, I'm thinking of like the his like the bad parts of psychology is, I mean, related to stats. So we've got some, uh, good old, um, genetic profiling and stuff like that. And yeah. phrenology, you know, every field's got its dark fucked up history, I guess. Well, related to phrenology, uh, one of the things I recently studied, uh, was Samuel Morton and the Crania America, Americana or whatever. Um, and that is just, you know, racing skeletons um, and measuring brain capacity. Um, so there is science in history. And I tell, I'm TA uh, for the past two years. So I tell all of my students that you like history, you just haven't found the right story yet. Um, <laughs> so I, I try and offer a broad range of topics for them to look into. And usually I can uh, reach just about everybody um, with here. This is something you might be interested in. Um, so that's, that's what I tell most people is you like history. You just didn't like the way it was taught to you because history is just story. I think that is, yeah, exactly. It's uh, so true. Factual storytelling is what I like to think of it as. <laughs> um, well, I think that's an awesome place to end it just cause I, that's such a good pull quote. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'll just go ahead and say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast. You can leave me a review on iTunes uh, since your review helps me reach a larger audience and get more interesting guests on the show. In addition, I have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast. Uh, this helps support all the production costs. As of now, a friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been editing the episodes, um, but we'd really like to make this a more sustainable project so it's not just his, uh, you know, his his Sunday fun project, quote unquote. Um, 
If you want to hear what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter at phdrinking. I also have a personal account at Sadie Witt, though I can't guarantee it will be science or podcast related. Uh, And then Lindsay, how would you like listeners to be able to find out more about you and your work? Uh, My Twitter is at Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, 13 underscore Marie, M-A-R-I-E. I I mostly tweet about how tired I am, so... (laughs) I try not to do that. I'm like, I'm, it's just going to be the same meme of need more coffee over and over. And my cat. You'll see a lot of pictures of my cat. So. <laughs> um, well, and as always, I'll make sure to include some links about your research in the podcast description. So, uh, and, and the Twitter handle, of course. So if anyone didn't catch that, it'll be there in the show notes. Um, well, thanks for joining me on the show. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. This has been great. I'm I'm so excited. Now I'm going to be thinking more about museum design whenever I go to the, which I don't know what museum on. I need to go to several museums in Chicago. I've been to most of them, but I need to go multiple times because there's too many exhibits. The Field Museum does a great job. They really do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll be thinking about museum design and public history when I go to the Field Museum next. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and to all you listeners out there, cheers. <laughs>